It's good to be back with you this week. Uh, we, my family was able to spend some time uh, on vacation last week, and so I appreciate Mike preaching for me last Sunday. I, last Sunday morning, I got up early, uh, did some walking around the little neighborhood we were staying in, and thought, I'm going to log on to Facebook so I can watch church and, and be a part of church. And uh, we were in the panhandle of Florida, which is on Central Time. And it didn't dawn on me that we were in a, a time, an hour different time zone. And so when I logged on, it was 11.25 here, 10.25. So I thought I was getting on in plenty of time. So it's 10.25 there. And the uh, thanks for watching, for being a part of our service uh, slide was on the screen. And so I texted Chase because I knew Chase was uh, handling stuff, the live stream stuff. And I was like, hey, is church already over? And he's like, yes. And I was like, oh, Mike really did me in. <laughs> it's like, because they're going to, I was like, how long did Mike preach? It's like, yeah, I know. It's like, they're going to hate me when I get back. Anyway, we are continuing in our series, Asking for a Friend. And uh, I've enjoyed being, uh, preaching this series so far. And today we're asking this question, why can't I just live life my way? That's the question we want to talk about. Why can't I just live life my way? And if you're a parent of a toddler or a teenager, or if you've ever raised a, a toddler or a teenager, you're probably familiar with that question. Why? Why can't I do things the way I want to do them? I want to do things my way right now. Why can't I do it? Well, let me answer that question with another question. How many of you play golf in here? A few of you. How many of you know how many rules there are in golf? Well, when golf first was introduced as a sport, there were about 17 main rules, 17 rules. And that pretty well took care of the entire game of golf. And as a sports official, I, when I read something like that, I'm like, that's not a lot. I mean, as, as a basketball official and a baseball umpire, there are, there are like nine main rules, but then every rule has like its own little sub rule. And so there's hundreds of rules. Now the game of golf has evolved where it has about 34 main rules, but if you, if you break those rules down, you'll find that there are over 150 little intricate rules to the game of golf. For example, if you accidentally put your ball down on the tee box, and you put it one inch in front of the tee markers, you know, the little boxes that tell you where to tee off, if you put your ball in front of one of those tee markers, and you hit your, hit your shot, your drive, that's a two-stroke penalty for being in front of the tee box. If you're in deep rough and you uh, approach the ball and you take a swing and you miss the ball because it's su such high grass there and, and you missed the ball and you had the intent to, to hit the ball, that's a stroke. If you hit your ball into a water hazard, a pond or a lake or a creek or something like that, that that's a, that's a one-stroke penalty. Unless you work in ministry, then it's baptizing your golf ball and it's a one-stroke reduction. Yeah, there, there are different rules to navigate the game of golf. And golf expects you to abide by those rules so that your, your score will accurately reflect your performance. Last year I was playing golf with my basketball assigner and two other basketball referees. And, and those of you who have played golf with me, you know that number one, I'm not that good. Um, and number two, I have such a bad slice off, off, the, off the tee. And what I mean is that my ball, as I hit it with my driver, goes like this. And, and so because of that, I aim really far left. 
because I haven't figured out how to fix that in my swing, and it's just now it's easier just to aim much farther left and hope it ends up where I want it to. And so if you were to see me on a tee box, in fact, a couple of years ago, we were playing in, I was playing with some friends on vacation. We were in Florida, and we were at one of those nice, nice courses that has a starter, and they tell you, you know, when you can go and all that stuff. And, and I get on the first tee, and I am aimed way left, like I am aimed right at this person's house. And this, this guy, he comes in, he's like, whoa, 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 what are you doing, buddy? And, and my friends who I was playing with, they're like, he won't hit it there. Don't worry, it's going to go way over there. And so I did, and they were, the guy was like, how does anybody do that? And they're like, we don't know either. So anyway, I'm not that good, and I have to aim way left. And we get to the 12th or 13th hole this day, and I am aimed about 30 yards left, thinking that my ball will probably end up on the right side of the fairway, maybe even on the right side of the cart path. But, but, you know, that's just what I do. And I get up on the tee, and I absolutely crush this ball. I mean, probably, probably the best contact I've hit all day, and I just crushed it off the tee. Just one problem. I finally hit it straight. And I hit that ball about 30 yards out of bounds, wasn't even close to being inbounds. And, and as soon as I hit the ball, I knew, like, oh. So that's a one-stroke penalty. So on a par four, which means you sh- it should take four shots to get the ball in the cup, I'm standing on the tee box. I've hit my first shot out of bounds. That's a one-stroke penalty. That's two. Now, from that same spot where I just hit, I'm just going to hit my third shot. On a par four that's not that difficult, I may make par. I'll probably make double bogey. I'm not that good. So, so now I'm thinking, oh, my whole round is ruined because I'm hitting my third shot from here. And as soon as I hit the ball, me and the other two officials, as soon as the ball landed, me and the other two officials, we immediately turned and looked at our a signing secretary, our supervisor. Why did we look at him? Well, because in golf there's this thing called a mulligan. A mulligan represents freedom. A mulligan is a redo. A mulligan is a, is a miracle for the weekend golfer. Because if you use a mulligan, it's like your previous shot never happened. It didn't exist. But there's this unwritten rule in golf that whoever pays for the round of golf gets to decide who gets to use a mulligan and when they get to use it. And because my supervisor paid for the round of golf we all looked to him to see if he was going to grant a mulligan and usually what happens is if it's not a close match and if you're playing against me it's usually not um, that person will say yeah Adam go ahead and take a mulligan just go ahead and drop another ball down and, and hit it and I'll breathe a sigh of relief because my score's not completely ruined and I get a fresh start and then I usually get up and hit the ball in the exact same spot that I just hit it but in this case because my signer was also my partner in the match, he's like, yeah, go ahead and hit another one. And so I got a mulligan. I got a, I got a fresh start. You know, it seems that in every aspect of our lives, our life is governed by more rules and, and, and less by grace. And I don't always think that's a bad thing either. I mean, even a simple game would not be as fun if there weren't any rules. But we have this tendency in, in our lives to see uh, rules and restrictions as, as boundaries, as, as obstacles and barriers to what we want, obstacles to our, to our freedom. Maybe you saw the, the story a, a few years ago as we were starting to come out of the COVID pandemic, as things were starting to reopen. There was an article in the New York Post about the uh, California Parks and Attractions Department, and they decided as they reopened that they, they would have a vote, and if you came into one of their parks and you rode one of their roller coasters, there was to be no screaming allowed. 
because they were so they were so scared that the coronavirus was going to spread, and so they put you every four seats, every four rows. This is how they started, and even with that, they were still so fearful of the coronavirus spreading that they said roller coaster riders could not scream. You, you had to sit there in silence. I, I like what Disney said. They encouraged their park goers to scream in their heart. Isn't that so dumb? <laughs> I wonder how that worked out. But but we listen to that. And, and we hear that, and our response is that rules restrict us, and something just pulls up inside of us, and our inner William Wallace wants to come out and just yell, freedom! Because that's what we want, right? It's what everybody wants. It's freedom. We don't want someone else telling us what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live. I want to live my life my way. I like the clarification that Kevin Myers makes. He says, we say that we're anti-rules, but the reality is, is we don't want to get rid of the rules. We just want to be the ones to make the rules. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. There's a reason that one of the biggest hits of all time songs it was Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. Because that resonates with us. We want to call the shots because we think if someone is telling us what to do, then they are robbing us of, of our independence. They are robbing us of our freedom. It comes to mind when, when you're dating someone and you want to have the intimate privileges of marriage without the commitment of, of marriage. I had friends who were going through a separation and the husband had moved out, but he still wanted to come over at, at night. And the wife, to her credit, said, nope, that's husband privileges. And if you can't accept husband responsibility, you don't get husband privileges. We get irritated with, with rules, don't we? We even get perturbed at, at, at God's rules. But what if those boundaries, those guidelines, what if those rules... And those regulations, they were designed by our Creator to allow us maximum freedom and maximum fulfillment. What if those guidelines and those guardrails from God were actually motivated by love and not control? I want us to look at three different beliefs that we find in society today. And these are popular beliefs. I don't think they're true beliefs. Or I don't think they're, they're when I say I don't think they're true, I don't believe them. But, but these are three popular opinions that I think we often find in society that, that people believe about God and His rules. And number one is this, is that God's objective isn't what's best for me. In other words, God's agenda is quite different than yours. He has a different end game than you have. We, we tend to think that God probably wants us to live a life of poverty or, or to say no to a future with the person of our dreams, to become a missionary in some underdeveloped country. The reality is, is that God wants us to reach our potential. That's what he wants. He created you for a purpose, and that purpose can unfold in a variety of ways. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to, to prosper you, not to harm you, for, for plans to give you a hope and a future. But all we can see in our lives is what we've experienced. But God sees our entire life. He sees, he sees the future. He sees what's ahead of us, and he knows that what we're experiencing right now isn't the, the end of the road. It's just a, a little bend in the road. And like a loving father, his objective is always what's best for us. There's another popular belief that some people think, and it's that God is too controlling of my life. That, that he's over top of us, that he's somehow like a, a cosmic party pooper. He's a killjoy, a, a wet blanket, an anti-fun God. And, and if we follow him, we won't be able to have any fun at all. We'll, we'll just, you know, we'll have to sing kumbaya around the campfire for the rest of our lives. That's all we're ever going to do. That's the the perspective that people have 
And our natural tendency is to, re- to resist whatever restrictions that God or, or really anyone else for that matter places on us. We don't like relationships that are controlling, do we? I mean, especially when they try and control us. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a controlling spouse or if, if you're a middle schooler or a teenager and you think your parents are trying to control you. It's not fun, is it? We don't like those kind of relationships. I, I grew up on a dairy farm, and when I was 16 or 17 years old, my friend Stephen and I, we were responsible for doing all the milking of, of our, our, our cows. We milked at 3 in the morning and 3 in the afternoon. And so um, while I was in school, he would usually start milking, and by the time I got home, I would, I would help him finish up. But in the mornings, at 3 o'clock in the morning, we, we were at the barn and we were milking. Stephen was just a little bit older than I, was about a year or so older than me. And so on Friday and Saturday nights, we, we hung out a lot, and we would look for some sort of mischief to get into, and we often found it. And while my dad wasn't crazy about me being out all night, the rule was simple. Be home in enough time to get, get some sleep so that you can be up in time to milk. Because the cows still have to be milked. It doesn't matter what time you come in. You still have to, you still have to get up and milk. And so one weekend, we just decided that we would just stay out all night. That we would, instead of coming home and, and getting a couple hours of sleep, we would just stay out. We had found some mischief to get into and we enjoyed that. And we were just going to do that. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, we would roll into the barn. And that was all fine and great, right? Because at 3 o'clock in the morning, the, the barn lights were on, the cows were being milked, everything was like it was supposed to. And my thought, my plan was, we get done milking about 7 in the morning, I'm going to go home, take a shower, and go to bed and sleep all day. Except one problem with that, my dad had other plans. See, it was the end of spring, early summer, and there's a lot of work to be done on the farm at that time of year. And so my dad, knowing that we had stayed out all night, knowing that I had violated his rule, waited till we got done milking he let me come home take a shower I got in bed about uh, 7 15 my head hit the pillow and at about 7 25 my dad came knocking barging in my room flipping on the lights saying hey come on get up we got to go there's a lot of work to get done you want to talk about a bad day I was not in a good mood all day but I was the one who violated the rule wasn't I my parents had rules society has rules, and yet I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to live my life my way. And, and that's often been an apt description of my life, whether I was 17 or 37. Rules are designed to allow you to get the most out of life. Boundaries are there to protect you and ultimately to give you more freedom and to improve your life. Why do parents have boundaries and restrictions? It's because they care and they love their kids, right? I mean, uh, a wise parents will will tighten the reins on their kids. They will have tight reins on their kids while they're young, and then as they get older and they mature, then they'll gradually give them a little more freedom and responsibility. It's a biblical principle that I think you're probably already familiar with. It's found in Luke chapter 16. 16 verse 10, Jesus says, Be faithful in the small things, and I will what? I will put you in charge of many things. That's not being a controlling parent. That's a healthy pattern for parenting. Boundaries foster security. These are your children, and as a parent, you get to make the rules, and you get to establish the boundaries. And each of us, we are God's children, and so our Heavenly Father, He gets to make the rules, and He gets to set the boundaries, and He gets to determine the consequences when we disregard His expectations. That's not controlling, that's love. If God wanted to control us, He would have made us as robots. He wouldn't have given us any sort of free will, but He loves us, and so He gives us our freedom. He gives us this free will. We get to make our own choices. I remember having that realization 
uh, moments after Noah was born of, of how much my parents actually loved me. Because if you're not a parent, I don't think you understand that you grasp how much your parents actually love you until you have a, a, a child that you're responsible for, your, for yourself. And I remember having this realization as, as the doctor put Noah in my arms, just thinking how much I already loved this, this baby that was just you know minutes old. And thinking that's how much my parents have loved me my whole life. When a child becomes a parent, somehow the, the rules and the boundaries that their parents had suddenly begin to make sense, don't they? That's why you cared about who I spent time with. That's why you cared about what time I came in at night. Those boundaries are motivated by love, not control. Let's look at one more popular belief in, in our society, and it's this. Is that God doesn't know as much as I do. God doesn't know as much as I do. Now, now don't get me wrong, for Christians, we would never say this out loud. I mean, we, it's not something that you, you, you put out there. But at times, our attitude and our behavior seem to communicate that. That God doesn't know as much as we do, and yet we are the creature, and He is the creator. But let's be honest, we're not the first to think that or the first to ask that question. Why can't I just live life my way? Satan felt that way. He wanted total control. He was an angel, but, but he wanted to do things his way, and, and he thought more highly of himself, and he thought that he knew more than God did, and so God kicked him out of heaven. He thought he was better than God. Isaiah 14, 12 tells us about his exit from heaven. Satan's attitude was, nobody's going to tell me what to do. But it didn't stop with Satan, did it? Next came Adam and Eve, and they thought they knew more than God, and that they could become like God because the serpent told them, told them if they just ate from that, the fruit from that tree that they would be like God. Isn't it interesting that the very same temptation that, uh, that Satan offers Eve is the same one that got him kicked out of heaven? You see, Adam and Eve didn't like the rules. I should just say rule because there was just one. Don't eat, from the, don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. That was the only rule. God said, don't eat from that tree. Everything else in the garden is fair game, just not that tree. One rule. But one broken rule multiplies, doesn't it? It multiplies the rules. We go from one rule to ten commandments. And when Moses gave the ten commandments and, and they were disregarded, it led to 603 more commandments for the Jewish community. That's what happens when, when rules get broken. It, it just it snowballs. Our problems start to snowball when we think that we're eating from, from the forbidden fruit and we think that's going to lead us to freedom. But it doesn't. I heard, heard it said one time, every human will graduate to becoming more like God or more like Satan. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way to death. Think about that. You, if you really think that you know more than the one who hung the stars in the sky, if you really think that you know more than God, that puts you on a level above God. And if even, and even if that were true, it's not, but even if that were true, that we were somehow above God or that we could be above God, would you really want that? Would you really want that? I mean, that would be a lot of pressure. Think of it like this. I mean, do you really want the responsibility of God without having the power of God? I mean, that would be foolish, wouldn't it? We've looked at three popular beliefs or false beliefs of our society pretty quickly this morning, but I want us to look at three reasons why we should live life God's way, why we should follow the, the rules that God has, has created for us. And the reason number one is this, is that whoever creates the universe gets to create the rules. Right? That, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? It seems fair, right? Whoever creates the universe gets to make the rules. I heard Dave Stone say one time that if you can believe the very first verse in the Bible, 
you should be able to believe everything else that's in the Bible. If you can believe the very first verse, then you should be able to, to believe everything else that's in there. Well, what's it say in the very first verse? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so if God is powerful enough to do that, then what's the big deal about making it rain for 40 days and 40 nights? If God is powerful enough to create the entire universe, the entire uh, solar system, all the, the world as we know it, what's the big deal about taking a kid's lunch and, and feeding 5,000 people with it? What's the big deal about healing someone? What's the big deal about somebody spending three days in the belly of a well? What's the big deal about somebody who was dead coming back to life? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is all-powerful, and there's only one Messiah per universe, and you're not it. And neither am I. Here's another reason. Number two, obedience to God's rules will always lead to freedom. Obedience to God's rules will always lead to freedom. Here's another way that we could say that, that rebellion to God's rules will never lead to freedom. Not only is that what the Bible teaches, but statistics and surveys and, and, and common sense and just logic bear this out. That God's ways are always what's best for us. Not only in, in the next life, but in this life. For instance, the Bible warns about the dangers of debt. Uh, Proverbs 22, 7 says that the borrower is slave to the lender. And those of us who have had great debt in our lives, we would agree with that verse. And we would add to that verse that, that getting out of debt is quite liberating. It, it's quite freeing. Why? Because God's ways make sense. How about in another area? About, how about sexual intimacy? The world says sleep with whoever you want, when you want. But when the Bible speaks of, of, of sexual intimacy, it speaks of faithfulness, of saving yourself for marriage, and, and then marrying and staying married to that person so that you can enjoy and explore the world of intimacy with your spouse and only your spouse. Proverbs 5.15 says, drink water from your own cistern. In other words, stick with the person you chose. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says, the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence, but it's poison. And a loving God Put that fence there to protect you. God's ways make sense. Let's look at another area uh, that we've seen in the last couple of years. Excuse me. The, the past few years have taken its toll on the mental health uh, of people in our country. I've certainly felt it. I'm sure you have as well. And you've probably heard or seen a statistic that says that anxiety has escalated in, in our country, in, in America. And in November of 2020, Gallup released a study that was a, co a comprehensive look from a survey that they did about the percentage of decline of mental health in Americans from the year 2019 to the year 2020. And they measured in 14 different categories. And what they found was that in almost every single demographic that there had been a decline in mental health. I want, I want to show you this chart that they released. Go ahead and put that up there. They looked at gender and household income and age group, and, and it didn't really matter uh, because if you look in the last column, the, the percentage of differential uh, from 2019 to 2020, it didn't matter, male or female. You know, male was 49% in 2019 and, and 41 in 2020, a difference of 8 points. Female, same, a difference in 10 points. Household income, it didn't really matter. If you made under 40K, it was 6 points. If you made uh, over 40,000, it, it was a little bit higher, a 12-point differential. You look at age group. And it didn't matter what age group you were in. There was a decline. 18 to 19, uh, 18 to 29 year olds, nine, 9 points. 30 to 49 year olds, 8 points. 50 to 64 year olds, 9 points. Let's look at the next one. Uh, party identification, Republican and Democrat. 
The, the Democrats were down just a, one point. Republicans were, were down 15. But remember, the, remember what had just happened. This was, the survey was done in November of 2020, right after the uh, national elections. And so the Democrats, they were down just a little bit, but the Republicans had just lost the elections, and so they were way down. If you look at the next category, uh, race, doesn't matter, white, non-white, it was still the same. You, there was a decline. One more category. Church attendance. Church attendance. For those who came on a weekly basis, go back to, yeah, right there, that one. For those that came back to a weekly basis was an increase in four points. The only one in 14 categories that had a positive increase was for those who attended church on a weekly basis. Don't tell me that the church is not essential. Don't tell me that, that, that it doesn't make a difference. And, and let's look at this because... To, let's unpack this a little bit more because to be fair, you, you need to know this. If you attended church weekly, it was an increase of 4%. But if you only came monthly, once a month, it was a, a difference in 12 points negative. If you seldom or never came, it was a decline of 13 points. What do you derive from that? Here's what you derive is that faith is not something that you can play at. That faith has got to be a priority. That this is, faith is not a faith of convenience. That it's a faith of commitment. And, and I think these studies reveal what God's Word has said all along, that your emotional health will be better if you have a group of people that you're doing life with, that you're involved with, with people who, and you're, you're living life with, with, with a Christian fellowship. Hebrews 10.25, what's it say? Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. You say, I don't well, I get it. You're, you're a preacher. You're supposed to say this kind of stuff, right? I mean, you're, you're pushing worship attendance for the sake of the church. Well, not really, because the church survived months where the congregations from all over the world couldn't get together and meet in person. And the church survived that. So I'm not pushing it for worship attendance for the, for the sake of the church. I'm pushing it for your sake. Because I want you to be healthy and relation, relationally, spiritually, and emotionally healthy. So why can't I live life my way? Because my way and your way doesn't lead to freedom. And we all want freedom. The Bible teaches us that freedom is found in Jesus Christ. God the Father gave us the Ten Commandments so, so that we could see, so that it would reveal our sinfulness, so that we could under, uh, understand, and, and the Ten Commandments would underscore our profound need for a Savior who could keep the law, and not just keep it, but also fulfill the law. That's why God sent Jesus. And Romans 8.1 says that, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's great news, isn't it? But I know what some of you might be thinking. You're thinking that sounds too good to be true. And here's the reason why we think it's too good to be true. It's because we have no earthly idea how, just how much God actually loves us. It's difficult for us to grasp. But God loved you enough to send His Son to earth to live a perfect life, to die an atoning death in order, that, in order to pay for every sin that you've ever committed, in order to pay for every rule that we've ever broken. You say, well, how can I have hope knowing that on the day of judgment I'm going to have to answer for all of that? How can I have any hope knowing that I'm going to have to stand before a holy and perfect God and have to answer for my sins, answer for all the rules that I'm broken? How can I have hope? How can I know certain that, how can I know for certain that Jesus will forgive me? Well, go back to, here's how you can know. Go back to the Mulligan story I told you at the beginning of this message. The one who pays the price determines who gets the grace. And make no mistake about it, Jesus paid the price. 
He paid the ultimate price, and he deserves and, and he he gets to determine who receives his grace. And at the cross, Jesus received what I deserved. And someday I will receive what I didn't deserve. And if you're searching for freedom, I'm just here to tell you that all roads lead to Jesus. If you've ever, if you've never committed your life to Jesus, my challenge would simply be this for you today. That you would accept Jesus, that you'll accept his grace, that you, you, he'll be a part of your life, that you'll, you'll, you'll say he's the one who paid the price and I want to receive the grace that he gives. And so I'm going to make that commitment. I'm going to accept him because that's where, where my hope is. That, that's where freedom is found. And you can't experience that, that forgiveness and fulfillment and freedom until you completely surrender your life to Christ. I know that doesn't make sense, does it? I can't have freedom unless I surrender. But that's exactly the way of the kingdom of God. The whole, the whole kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Blessed are the poor, right? Nobody ever says that. We say blessed are the rich, but Jesus said blessed are the poor. And if you want real freedom in Christ, if you want real freedom in this life and in the next, then you'll surrender your life to Him. So this morning, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, and there's an open invitation to come and accept that grace that Jesus offers and if you're already a Christian, then, then your challenge is a little bit different. Your challenge is to tell somebody this week about the mulligan. To tell somebody about, about the person who determines who gets the grace. Because Jesus paid the price. So he's the one that gets to give the mulligans. I don't get to determine that. You don't get to determine that. He created the world. He makes the rules. He paid the price. He gives out the grace. And the great news for all of us is that he gives grace. That all you have to do is say, hey, I will surrender my life to you. And grace is yours. Pray with me.